Eric Veal with the AppsJack Capable Communities Podcast, and I am coming to you from Seattle, Washington, which is home of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Boeing, and an incredible startup ecosystem that rivals Silicon Valley. Each episode, I bring on friends and guests who are executives and business leaders from the local community and around the world to talk about a topic that we find very interesting. Please enjoy this episode. Today on the show, I'm happy to have Dave Niederkrom, Joe Wallen, and Jonathan Olson, and I'll let those guys introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Dave Niederkrom, and I'm a seasoned finance and finance guy and serial entrepreneur. Uh, my current project is um, I'm building a, a uh, curated research and collaboration platform for the financial space. Yeah, my name's Joe Wallen, and I am a uh, startup and early stage technology company lawyer in Seattle, and I work with a lot of different uh, companies and investors and companies around town. My name is Jonathan Olson. I'm a registered patent attorney. I work for Aon Law, which is a IP boutique, and I'm happy to have an opportunity to demystify some of that stuff today. Yeah, so it's really good for these guys to be here. Uh, the topic that we're going to talk about today is acquire, construct, and manage assets, and we'll get into those conversations now. All right, we're going to talk about uh, intellectual property and trade secrets in this episode, and we have with us Jonathan Olson, who's going to uh, lead the discussion, at least initially, to kind of talk us through some of the issues and things to think about for our audience. Trade secrets is such a juicy area lately. So much happened just in the past couple of years. Do you guys know about the Move.com versus Zillow fight that went on just locally? We were talking about startups. These two uh, founders, or I don't know, early innovators that were helping to come up with how do you value real estate algorithmically, jumped ship at the worst possible time from move.com to Zillow. To Zillow. And after having signed all these uh, well-crafted employment agreements that were reinforced every, every quarter, they would have to re-sign. It seemed like move.com was doing a lot of things right in terms of maintaining their trade secrets. Nevertheless, these, these guys brought their laptops and just flagrant uh, team switching to Zillow. And uh, as a result, Move.com filed suit for $1.77 billion. <laughs> Big deal, right? Anybody <laughs> sues anybody for anything. It doesn't say that much. But what was interesting is just a couple of years ago when Zillow said, well, let's just put all this behind us. We'll write you a check for $130 million. Wow. So that's, that's a pretty juicy uh, kind of a settlement deal, uh, even from a patent perspective. So mm -hmm. it's, it, it's kind of one, one of the factors that has helped get trade secrets back on the map. But another big one that came around in uh, 2016 was the Defend Trade Secrets Act, where Congress actually did something to help uh, American businesses, re recognizing that the intellectual property, and in particular trade secrets, uh, usually business know-how, formulas, patterns, devices, compilations, all that good stuff that a company has that gives them an advantage over their competitors that tr they try to keep secret. <clears throat> that stuff forms, an on average, about three quarters of the value of almost any business. And so uh, it's, it makes sense to put a little bit of effort. And in, in even, you know, I look at trade secrets as a, a very, very fertile ground for almost any business to put a little bit of effort and really make a big difference to their bottom line down the, down the line. 
And uh, I think trade secret, good trade secret hygiene needs to be an, an important part, a key aspect of any business, uh, any viable business, especially in the technology area. <clears throat> and only on, on an, in an exceptional basis should uh, a company consider converting some of its trade secrets into a patent. Patents are very limited. Uh, you get a patent from each federal government, each, each government of the world, uh, but, you, but a trade secret, if it's maintained, gives you effective protection internationally without having to negotiate with a, with a government agency. But when somebody comes and steals your trade secrets, when your summer intern is making off with, with his or her laptop to the airport and you are trying to figure out, <clears throat> well, what am I going to do about this? It's probably too late, so it's good to have some proactive things in place. Uh, and so it's just, and, and it can vary a lot depending on what your business is. The business owners, the management team, are often in the best position to re recognize what would be reasonable steps to protect your trade secrets. But everybody can contribute. And so you know, I, I think that every business ought to at least have some kind of strategy in place, some, something written out, maybe a journal in which you write down what you did. So it sounds like there's a few different issues there. So um, first question, I think, is um, frame that for us as assets. Clear, clearly, the trade secrets, for example, or the IP of the company is an asset and needs to be managed as one. True? Yes, yes. And yeah. it's an asset that can be stolen, misappropriated. It can go unmanaged, but much more often it just goes unmanaged. Yep. And so taking steps like may, having an employment agreement, mm -hmm. having an idea what, what things are a trade secret, having something that you can say to the judge when, you are when you're going and trying to, trying to get a, an ex parte seizure order to get that laptop back to stop it from going on, onto the airplane. Or, or when you go to see the FBI and you claim that something has been stolen, you have to be able to say what it is you owned in some way. Yes. yes, it's an asset. And, and it sounds like the, um, so the, kind of from a security and privacy perspective or just kind of a contracting and legal perspective, there's something that's very important there. It's, a, it's an asset, that, asset class that needs to be protected. It's not just that it needs to be managed. It also needs to be proactively protected. And um, the, there's procedure policy process that needs to be embedded into the business culture, for example, to to maximize the value of that asset right. or those assets. Right. Something that you've put in your journal that you've labeled trade secret reasonable steps to protect mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> so that when you're called into court and the judge asks, have you taken reasonable steps to protect it, you can at least say something. And, and so what are these and what are these not, for example? So what, what's an example um, that that isn't in this category of IP and trade secrets um, people probably can't be, I'm assuming, for example, as a category. Um, wh what are some examples? I mean, like brand. Can, brand um, yeah, I mean, you, you, can, you can put a non-compete clause into your employment agreement, for example. And if it's unreasonable, then the court will, will strike it out and say you can't own your employees for 10 years after they, after they work for you. you can, two years is kind of a, a soft limit that a, that a lot of court, times courts will impose. Mm. Okay. Any, any other thoughts from our other guests about, so our topic is IP and trade secrets. What have your experiences been with um, either creating IP or, or managing two trade secrets? How 
critical is that process to startups or businesses at all? Well, it's 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 really critical. I think um, you know if you go to um, say you start a startup and you uh, get to a point where um, people are willing to write a check to invest in the business, I mean, very frequently you'll be asked to represent and warrant in the investment documents that every employee, every independent contractor who ever did any work for the company signed an invention assignment agreement. And if you don't, if you have a people who haven't, um, and you just and you disclose that as you would be required to, because the way these in these kind of situations, um, the investors are frequently require you to go hunt that person down and get them to sign the sign the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a situation recently where a company had had a consultant come in and do some work, and they paid the consultant, and the and the six six or nine months had gone by or something like this, and then they uh, they found themselves in, in the middle of a, an investment transaction, and the investors said. We're not putting our money in until you go hunt that person down and get them to sign an agreement. I had a situation one time where, true story, um, company made a early stage company made an offer to a, a CTO type person, um, and they kind of shook hands on the sort of equity split, and uh, company provided the you know prospective CTO with all the employee innovations agreements and the stock agreements and everything like this, and then the. Um, uh, the, the CTO started work, um, and and then about three weeks, three or four weeks later, the uh, the CTO said, "Well, I I've talked to my um, talked to my spouse about this, and I can't I can't do this deal for the equity you offered us or me. And it needs to be a lot more." And basically, there was a falling out, and uh, and so the person didn't continue to work for the company and never signed any documents. And um, the company took the code and the work product that the person had created in that first few weeks and uh, didn't use it. But nevertheless, uh, when they sold the company about five years later, the buyer made them go back and get signatures from that guy. Um, and so as I tell people, uh, you know, consider your startup like a, uh, a ski hill. Like say you owned a ski hill. You wouldn't let anyone get on the lift unless they bought a lift ticket. And the lift ticket said on the back of it, you know, you're responsible for your own negligence, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is similar. You just don't let it, your, your startup is your little mountain. Yeah. And you don't let anyone get on your mountain until they sign the documents correctly. Sure. You just don't do it. Otherwise, you expose yourself to, to a lot of risk. Now, as a practical matter, people start businesses all the time, and, and they sort of do it out of a sense of collaboration. Um, and before they've even thought if they have a business, they might just start collaborating on ideas. And you can't get into sticky situations that are sort of inadvertently... And we've seen some obviously some really ugly lawsuits against you know Snapchat and Facebook, and it's pretty it's pretty common. If you build a company, you have success, and you've left the door open for someone to sue you, mm. there is there is a, you may very well get sued, and that's a not a fun thing to have to deal with. There are two really important points that you mentioned, Joe, that I, I want to <laughs> emphasize. One is the importance, all, all businesses, all collaborations happen with a sense of goodwill at the, the outset. And, and it's really important to commemorate that with an agreement while you're still in that period. Later on, it can, it, <clears throat> it can happen later, but the leverage is usually money <laughs> if it happens later. 
And a second point that you mentioned is an invention assignment agreement. And I would like to mention, I would like to emphasize, underscore the particular importance that it's an invention assignment agreement and not a non-disclosure agreement. Yeah, yeah, this is a classic error. Don't, I mean, it's not a non-disclosure agreement. is not sufficient. It's all not of, what you have a service provider or a collaborator sign. All of your consultants that you hire who, who make contrib- creative contributions, all of your uh, co-founders, all of your employ- employers need to assigned to a common entity, or you are going to end up in a, an ugly kind of a reverse auction situation if you don't get a, ha- get a handle on it. Good point, Joe. T- tell me more about the invention disclosure thing. What, what all is in there? What's it saying? What's its job or role? A non-disclosure agreement says, I promise to keep stuff about what, what I'm working on here secret. I'm not going to go tell other people. An invention assignment agreement says, what I help co- contribute here is now going to be belong to the entity. It's going to belong to the LLC or company. Mm. Uh, so it's an, a crucial distinction. Gotcha. Yeah, and it's a standard industry document. I mean, you can find if you need if you're starting a company and you need to find a good employee innovations agreement or a good independent contractor agreement with the proper IP assignment provisions are readily available on the internet. But it's always a good idea to check in with your lawyers to make sure you're using good documents and yep yeah we did, we did part of the APQC model is there's a managing external relationships that was actually the first episode we ever recorded was that topic was managing external relationships and we started of course to get into law and contracts and so forth and in that particular act of managing your external relationships whatever they might be i mean it's really it's almost like the word external doesn't really matter managing your relationships and protecting your IP, protecting uh, your company value is critical above all else. I liked, I like the ski hill metaphor. I think that helps me think about the cautionary tale of you have something that you're valuing that's big to you, or it's, it's like to what um, Dave had mentioned as far as building a house or in the Microsoft case, all these houses. But, um, you know, yeah, you just don't want people to get into your amusement park um, and, and just get injured. Yeah, I'd like to add uh, just another couple things. You know, one of the guests mentioned the fact that, you know, when you start a new business, everyone's happy and it's all roses and, you, you know, you're just having a great time and you don't anticipate a problem. But when you're successful, if you don't lay things out initially, you're, you probably will have a problem because now there's a lot of money at stake. Yeah. Uh, if you're not successful, it's pointless right. because, you know, no one cares. But when you become successful, it, be, it be, can become an issue because it can be a lot of money involved. And then, you know, another point, it's a, it's a game changer when, you, when you're actually raising external capital. So if just a couple of buddies throw in, you know, a little bit of money themselves and go, fine. But when you start raising, you know, taking money from investors, it's a whole other level of, 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 of diligence involved and, and really legal aspects that you need to look at from, from non-compete, non-disclosures to assignment of intellectual property, whatever the case is. So it just, it gets... It's, it can get very sticky when you start raising money from from outside investors, but you know they want to be protected. They they want to what they call build a moat around your business, which is essentially protecting the business from from someone stealing your trade secrets or copying what you're doing. Yeah, and so it's very important to investors. And and it, I'm just also just thinking out loud here that it seems like the entity would be this kind of central vehicle to which these inventions, for example, get assigned. I mean, you have to have your entity first. And if you have your entity and the proper legal agreements, then you can go about doing business and protecting yourself, your ideas, and the business. And those are the business. Those are kind of the steps of it. 
Yeah, and that's probably, the, I mean, that's one reason to create a company, um, for sure, so you can have one place for all the IP to be assigned. I mean, I suppose I could hire, I could hire each of the three of you to just do some IP development work and assign it to me personally or something, it would be kind of odd. It would be more common to, maybe you don't know if you've got a real business yet, maybe it's still an experiment, you could form an LLC for a couple hundred bucks and have that be the entity that receives the, LLP, the, the, the IP initially. But, uh, but, you know, it's a, if you're contracting with third parties to do business, it's probably a good idea to form a business entity so you don't have to avoid putting yourself personally on the line in the event of a dispute. Well, and I've had, I've had in investors that have actually required us to do an assignment before they wrote the check. And, and that I, makes perfect sense. And I, don't, yeah. I don't blame them. They, they <laughs> should have. No, it, it, you should have, it as part of the formation of the business entity, you should have an IP assignment agreement. Yeah, I mean, we, I, I own the patent personally, and they forced me and some other people to assign it to the company. And right. that's exactly what they should have done. Right. Yeah, there's, there's, there's founder groups or founders who've, um, yeah, who want to retain like the patent. Mm -hmm. Generally, that just doesn't, doesn't fly with investors. Investors want to know the entity they're investing in owns the IP. Yeah. It doesn't have a license to it. That's just too flimsy. Um, so. It, what, what kind of tricks would there be as far as, I'm thinking of perhaps the, the selling of assets or I guess in my case, I wind up working on a lot of different side business projects. I have two business entities, which I think is probably one too many for me. Um, but my question is, for, for projects or basically assignment of IP to particular concerns where I don't have a great interest in continuing for every project that I work on to go and get yet another LLC or whatever? Or is, is that a good practice? Should I try to uh, allocate the risk and whatnot to a particular entity and, and to try to isolate that project to that you know business entity? I can just see where it doesn't really become very sustainable or fun, I think, to manage so many entities. Yeah, you don't need, I mean, you, you don't need more than one entity. And one entity can can do a dozen businesses, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, when you get, when you get, I mean, suppose you did have a, a side business which um, was generating a lot of revenue. And, I mean, maybe it's worthwhile to put that in a different entity at that point because you, I mean, for a classic example is a, you know, if you're going to own an apartment building or multiples of apartment buildings, maybe each one you want to have in a separate entity so you can segregate the liabilities from each of them. Yeah. But it really depends on the scale mm -hmm. and scope of what you're doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, I don't know, I guess I'd, it's a confusing problem to me. I think I've been involved in quite a few different startups. I've been involved or I've, you know, started a variety of different projects myself. I would typically tend to just kind of classify it. I basically only want to manage one business, one entity, one brand. Right. So it's all under the umbrella of AppsJack, for example. I have an LLC and a C-Corp. I basically don't use the C-Corp, even though that's like my target container for, I think, like all of my IP and really the future of what it is because it's the most robust form of entity, I think, C-Corp, um, beyond an LLC. But again, uh, I want to keep it simple and I don't have all the capital and resources in the world to manage multiple entities and all the the legal, I guess, complexity associated with it. Right. Well, an LLC can work great for uh, for just a one-person mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't have a federal tax return. If it's just you as the sole owner, you can just put it all on your 1040 Schedule C as if it was a sole proprietorship. So a single-member LLC can be a nifty 
form the thing for a couple hundred bucks at the state. Mm-hmm. You're the sole owner. It's pretty simple. It can be a nice vehicle to explore different ideas. Yep. Okay, well, let, let's maybe conclude. I think the points have, have been made. So our, our category here is, is intellectual property and trade secrets. But I think it sounds to me like the big call-outs, or at least what I'm taking away, is do protect it, do recognize it, do do your due diligence as an owner to make sure that these things get signed. Do it immediately. Uh, have the entity, have the legal contractual things, and exercise them always. Are there any tips we could give people who find that process um, cumbersome or uh, difficult where there's maybe a laissez-faire where it's like handshake and bros or we're good we're good but we're clearly not advising that what how do we make sure that people are willing to play get it done early just make sure it happens get it in get it in get it in writing as soon as possible yeah with signatures in some form at least while it's still friendly Okay, great. Yeah, so so we're in our asset management uh, topic, and we just talked about intellectual property and trade secrets. Next, we're going to talk about valuation. You've been listening to the Abstract Podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at appsjack.lipson.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to abstract.com meetup to get more information on this month's topic and the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of the Abstract Podcast. This has been a Seatown Media production. Find out more at seatownmedia.com, S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com. Media.com.